Good morning. There was a good, a good song to finish on, I think. I think it'll fit in well with some of the things we're going to think about today. Uh, you could open your Bibles to 1 John. First John and chapter three. Uh, we have already considered uh, the first two chapters of First John uh, as uh, Brother Jamel took up First uh, John chapter one and gave us a little bit of an overview and also some thoughts from from chapter one. Then we had a little bit of a break there for a couple of weeks and then we were back at it last week in First John two and uh, Brother David Gill took up first John chapter two. Uh, some of the same things that were mentioned from first John chapter two, if you remember, uh, are going to be repeated in chapter three. Many uh, theologians and commentators have noted that uh, the Apostle John, as he works through the epistle of first John, has somewhat uh, takes somewhat of a spiral approach where some of the things that you're going to read in chapter two He's going to restate again in chapter three and yet again in chapter four and even to an extent again in chapter five. And so some of the same thoughts are repeated, although it does seem like he gives a little bit of a different angle and uh, perhaps a little bit more detail as he goes through it. First, John is uh, a very thought provoking book. Uh, I would recommend um, that you take time to read it. And uh, it may take a lot of time. It's only five chapters, but I spent a lot of time reading through First John chapter 3. And uh, it's very thought-provoking. There's some very, very important principles and uh, certainly some things that, uh, that take a little bit of wrestling, I think, to, uh, to grasp them. And certainly, it is a challenging book. Thought-provoking, yes, and challenging indeed, Uh, to the Christian. And also, I might say that this is, and hopefully we're going to see this as we go into 1 John chapter 3. There are some very important things that we can apply as we uh, go about our day-to-day life. We live in a world uh, that uh, has all kind of false teachings out there. And uh, John, as many have noted, is addressing some deceptions. He's addressing some false teachings, false teachers, yes, but also their teachings. He's addressing some false teaching that doesn't fit with the Bible. It doesn't fit with biblical Christianity. And uh, certainly, as we look uh, at our world around us and we, uh, you know, read some of the things that are on the news, or maybe you have friends and you read their social media posts, and, uh, you know, there are many out there that claim to be Christian. And uh, yet the things that they say don't fit with the, the word of God. There are many out there who claim to be Christian and yet they they love evil. They don't they don't practice righteousness, as we're going to read. They don't care to practice righteousness. They are, in a sense, righteousness unto themselves. They have made up their own rules about what is right and what is wrong. And uh, I know we personally have friends and some distant family who claim the name of Christ, claim to be Christian. And yet the things that they think are okay don't fit with Scripture. They don't fit with biblical Christianity. And oftentimes they do it in the name of love, in the name of love. Well, God is a God of love and Christ loved uh, the world and so forth. But the Apostle John, who many call the Apostle of Love, has some very strong words, some very strong and direct words for false teaching and false teachers. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He bore on himself our sins on the tree. So to go about claiming some form of Christianity that minimizes sin, that minimizes what we were just singing, holiness, holiness. This was, this was Christ's intent. We read this morning from Ephesians 5, 
And uh, some of the things that John talks about, they're a little bit, I guess, they're, they're just thought provoking. They're they're uh, almost startling the way that they're worded. But we know that the intent of the work of Christ Jesus and what he did for us in taking our sins upon himself was not so that those who claim his name could go on living in sin. Understanding, yes, I know that this body of flesh, Paul is, talks about that. I, I, I have this body of flesh and, and we long for the day to be glorified to be given a new body, to be like him. We sung about that this morning, and we're going to read about that in, in 1 John 3. But the attitude of some is very cavalier towards sin. And uh, their approach is not, it's not a Christ-like, God-honoring approach. So Ephesians 5, we read this morning, says... Husbands, love your wives in verse 25, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the, with the washing of water by the word. Brothers and sisters, that's part of the gospel, that he would sanctify, sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Certainly, we're not saying that there is there's going to be sinlessness or perfection in the life of the Christian. But a very real part of the gospel is that he is my Lord. He's my master. Romans 6 tells us that having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. That's, that's, that's an, a very important part of the gospel. So, anyways, uh, the apostle John is going to deal with uh, some false teaching and it seems that there were some there in that day who said, uh, yes, I live a life of flagrant lawlessness and flagrant sin. But Christ is my savior. It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation, a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Again, I'm, we're not saying that there is going to be a perfection among the body of Christ. The Bible is filled. In fact, First John, he says, he says, uh, I, little children, I write these things to you that you would not sin, that you may not sin. But if any man sins, we have an advocate with the father. There is uh, this is something to, to wrestle with, brothers and sisters. It, in, in my opinion, it's something to to grapple with and to ask the Lord to help us. Yes, I live in, in this body of flesh. Yes, I am not yet glorified. I'm not yet perfect. I understand that. But he has delivered me not only from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. Yes, I will sin, but I don't have to. I have the ability to walk in the light, to walk with him because of what he's done, because of who he is. And uh, some challenging things, but very important indeed. So First uh, John chapter 3, and uh, it's going to start, and you're going to say, wait a minute, I don't, I don't see that. Uh, but the first few verses I, I'm going to be glad to comment on because they're beautiful. But then it's going to flow into some of these thoughts. Let me read one verse, and I'm going to read the whole chapter. But there's one verse uh, that is kind of a hinge verse as I see it. And very key and key in the whole book, I would say, but uh, certainly key in this chapter. First John three and verse 10. Read along with me. It says in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. That is to say, they're made known. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Uh, David mentioned last week when he began 1 John 2 that there are some tests, in a sense, that the Apostle John puts forth that help us to distinguish whether we are indeed Christians and whether those around us, whether the teachers of that day, certainly he had in mind that they would apply these tests to the teachers that were in their midst in that day. And they were tests, well, the two that are laid out in chapter 3 in specific are righteousness and love for the brethren. These are two things that should characterize the Christian. They, uh, they, they should be a very real part of our life, that we practice righteousness 
and that we love the brethren. So first John three, let's read the chapter together and then we will uh, we'll make some comments. It says, behold, what manner of love the father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, Because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love uh, his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Let's just pray. And ask uh, the Lord to to bless our time together as we uh, seek to understand his word. Our Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to uh, open your word. We thank you for giving us your word. We pray that you would help us, uh, help me as I uh, seek to uh, just uh, uh, portray some truth from your word and just to to simply read it and give it meaning, give it meaning. And uh, we just ask that you would uh, help us to rightly divide it, help us to understand it, and to apply it appropriately to our lives. We ask your help in Jesus' name. Amen. So he begins the chapter uh, with uh, this very well-known and beautiful verse. It says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. We considered some behold statements this morning, if you weren't here during the Lord's Supper, some behold statements. The idea is to stop and look, consider what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Children of God, what a term that's been applied to you and to me, to anyone who knows the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. We have been called children of God. It's a rather obvious statement, but in order to be called a child or in order to be someone's child, you have to be born. You have to be born. But that's not something that you have much to do with, is it? I didn't choose the family I was born into. Uh, It's just the way that God would have it. I was born to uh, Aaron and Marilyn. 
And uh, so I, I lay claim to them as my parents. I can't just lay claim to anyone as my parents. Oh, suppose I wanted to uh, be part of the family of the Gates, Bill Gates, and, and to take part in his wealth. Well, I certainly don't have the right to, to, to lay claim to him as father, to be called his child. Why? Because I wasn't born into his family. It's as simple as that. I was born into the family I was born into. What a wonder to be called a child of God. How does it happen? I want to read a verse or two from John chapter 1. Some very well-known verses from John chapter 1. As we consider this thought of being a child of God, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed that we should be called children of God. It says this in John chapter 1. He, that speaking of the Lord Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. In order to be called a child of God, you must be born again. That's what the Bible says. John 3 would elaborate even more. We don't have the time to go into it. But in order to be called a child of God, you must be born again. We thank God because uh, just as simply as receiving him as savior brings us into a relationship with him as father. And we could be called children of God. Listen to what the next verse says. It says, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, not of blood. There's no family relationship that would bring you in to a relationship with God as father. Other than to receive the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no earthly family, there's no blood family that could that could specifically lay claim to being children of God. It's not of blood. Nor is it of the will of the flesh. There's nothing you can do. There's no amount of good works. There's no amount of effort. There's no amount of 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 pleasing God by doing good things that you can do in order to become a child of God. It's not of the flesh, nor is it of nor is it the will of of man. There's no men out there. I can't I can't buy my children's way into heaven. I can't go and 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 uh, and and uh, on their behalf, plead with God to bring them into the family. I can certainly pray to do so, but I can't bring them into the family of God. No family relationship, no human effort, no no help by the part of any other man will make you a child of God. It says who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is a work of God Almighty. You simply believe, receive him. Believe on his name. It's the same idea as receiving him. And you'll become a child of God. We could do nothing to earn it. We could do nothing to deserve it. There was nothing in and of ourselves that would merit a, a, a standing with God to be called into his family, to be in a relationship as child with father and what a relationship it is. But to believe and to receive, he does all the work. Christ Jesus did all the work at Calvary to pay for your sins, to pave the way so that you could be a child of God. And I ask you today, are you a child of God? Have you received the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior? If you think that being born into a Christian family is going to do it, you're wrong. If you think that some amount of good works can do it, and I've talked to many, many people out there, they think by their own efforts, by the will of the flesh, they can do it. If you think that some other person out there, some some religious system, some priest could do it for you, you're wrong. It's of God. It's of God. And he gets all the glory. Just simply repent of your sins, receive him as savior, and you'll be called a child of God. There's a story in the Old Testament that many are familiar with. It's a story of Mephibosheth. 
And Mephibosheth is quite an illustration of this very thing. King David had become king in Israel, and Saul was no longer in the picture. King David had his own family, had his own people, and they were now part of the kingly line. But King David determined one day that he was going to seek out someone of the family of Saul, the prior king, who was in a sense an enemy of David, and he was going to show him kindness. He was going to show him kindness. And he found a a man named Mephibosheth. It was a man that was lame. He, he, He was just, he was a pity of a man. He had nothing to offer. He was lame on both his feet. He couldn't walk. It's the, the picture is he drug himself around. He had nothing to offer. But King David showed him kindness. And the Bible says that in 2 Samuel 9, that Mephibosheth was going to sit at the table of the king just like one of the king's sons. A man who had no right any longer. In fact, many have noted he should have been put to death because he was of the family of Saul. But King David showed him kindness, brought him into his banqueting house in that sense, sat him at the table, and he was going to be treated like one of the king's sons. A tremendous picture, brothers and sisters, that's you and I. And hence, the Apostle John says, Behold, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Prior to a work of God in our life, the Bible says, well, in this very chapter, we were children of the devil. That's what the scriptures say. Children of the devil. It sounds harsh, I know, but it's the reality because there's only two camps. There are those who know Christ as Savior, and there are those who are held under the sway of the wicked one. That's all the Bible leaves, and that's all the Apostle John leaves. We were not only children of the devil, we were children of wrath. God's wrath was upon us. What an awful place to be. But to as many as received him, to them he gave the right. If you've received him, you have the right to say, I'm a child of God. I'm a child of God. What higher honor is there than that? What higher place is there than that to be called a child of God? What a tremendous, tremendous place. And what a tremendous love. What manner of love? The idea is that it's a love that's out of this world. It's something that something that is beyond anything we've ever seen. God's love for us that we would be called children of God. What a relationship. God is my father. Do you understand that if you are a child of God? then the Bible says God is your father. I thoroughly enjoy my relationship with my sons, with all of my children. And I can see that they thoroughly enjoy the relationship with me as a loving father. Oh, I'm not perfect. I know that's not the point. The point is there's this tremendous bond of father and son, of father and daughter. Beloved, if you've received the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, The scriptures say that you have the right to be called a child of God. And it's better than being a child of anyone else out there, but a child of God. He owns it all. He's in control of it all. He's the sovereign God. What a privileged place to be. You could be a child of God. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. What a relationship. What a relationship. He's father. But what a revelation. Listen to this. Because, uh, behold, uh, it says, now, now we are the children of God in verse 1. I'm sorry. In verse 2. Beloved, now we are the children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. What a relationship. Yeah. He's father. What a revelation. Jesus is coming again. And and we're going to see him. And when we see him, we're going to like him. We're not going to be God. No, that's not the point. But morally, it's going to go on to say everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself in purity. We're going to be like him, like him. We're going to see him as he is. There are uh, some out there that claim the name of Christ, but they don't believe he's coming again. 
They don't believe that, that Jesus is coming again. But the Bible is filled with it. Jesus himself said, In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus said it himself. Obviously, John says it here. Luke says it in Acts chapter 1. You don't have to turn there. It's such a familiar verse, but I just want to take one minute because this is this is the hope of the believer. Yes, I know that if I die, I will see him. I know that. But the hope of the believer in Scripture is that he's coming again, and I may not die. He may just take me right to heaven. We were just talking about that this morning. Acts chapter 1, and I'm just going to read a verse to you. You don't have to turn to it because I'm going to read it quickly. It says, uh, 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 now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, this was the disciples, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. That's a pretty emphatic statement. He's coming again. Just like he left, he's coming again. John says it. The Lord Jesus says it. Uh, The angels here in Acts written by Luke declare it. And of course, we know the Apostle Paul loved the doctrine of the return of Christ. His letters are filled with it. Uh, First Thessalonians four says, uh, uh, I do not want you to be ignorant Brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and I'm getting to it so that hopefully I can get it just right. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Jesus is coming again. I could go to Titus chapter 2. The apostle Peter affirmed the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 1. We could look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Jesus is coming again. He's coming again. And when we see him, we're going to be like him, for we shall see him as he is. But it's not something that is just to be filed away in the back of our mind. But the Apostle John says, everyone who has this hope, what hope? The hope that Jesus is coming again and that we're children of God. So we're going to go with him. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. There is a future event that has a present effect. The future event is that Jesus is coming again, and it's imminently future. That means that it's likely to occur at any time. Jesus could come at any point in time. We don't know the day or the hour when he comes. He could come at any time. A future event, it's, it's yet to happen, but it has a present effect. There are many present effects that it should have. And the scripture declares that I wanted to look at some of them, but there's certainly not going to be time for it. But here in John, first John chapter three, it says everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. A future event, a present effect. Do you realize that Jesus is coming again? Do I realize this? I needed to be reminded of this. He's coming again. He could come today. And everyone who has this hope, if you really have the hope within you. It should be purifying you because if Jesus is coming again, well, look at what he says in in chapter two and verse 28. He says, and now little children, first John two, 28, abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. There should be a purifying effect. Oh, it should make us active in the work of the Lord. It should comfort us. That's what First Thessalonians 4 says. It should purify us. Jesus is coming again. We look forward to that. 
Then it goes on to say this, and I believe that these two truths, what a relationship, he's my father. What a revelation, he's coming again. It's upon these two truths that the Apostle John goes on to say, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. If we understand the reality of what Christ did, we will not take sin cavalierly. We will not take sin lightly. The Apostle John is emphasizing the seriousness of sin. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Sin is a rebellion against God, a rebellion against his law. When you look out at the world around you, I already mentioned this, but people are a law unto themselves. It, they, they make excuses for their sin. They, they say, well, I, I, you know, my wife, she didn't do what she needed to do. So I went out and did what I needed to do. And, and, you know, my employer, he's hard on me. So I steal and cheat and lie. I know, but I have a good excuse. The world is filled with lawlessness. But this should not be true of the Christian. The Christian should delight in the law of God. I understand that we have a body of flesh. Yes, and we will sin. I understand that. But we don't have to. We have the power of God. We have the power of Christ. And sin is very serious. Listen to this. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. The sinless Savior came to earth with a purpose. And you could take various angles at this. He came to do the Father's will. He came not to be served, but to be served. One of the truths of the reality of Christ coming to earth and dying at Calvary is that he came to take away our sins. How can we, how could someone who really knows Christ go on lightly, carelessly living in sin? This is going to be the the point of the Apostle John. If he's been manifested to take away our sins, and indeed he has, the scripture is filled with it. And I had multiple references to take you to. Hebrews 9, Hebrews 10, it says, It was not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away our sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He came to take away our sins. And the Apostle John is going to go on to say, if this is the reality of the gospel, then certainly the, the, the true child of God does not just carelessly go on living in sin. And brothers and sisters, this is important. We need to examine ourselves. Number one, we examine ourselves. Do I persist in lawless rebellion against God or does sin pain me? Do I, do I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, as Paul said? Do I love his law? Do I struggle with sin? Yes, we would struggle with sin. But I don't delight in doing sin. I don't just go on carelessly, uh, uh, frivolously, persisting in a life characterized by sin. And if we come in contact with people, and I have and I'm sure you have, people who say, I, 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 I live this life of, of, of sin. Yes, I know. But I love Jesus. But I, but I really, you don't understand. I live in adultery. I live in homosexuality. But I love Jesus. It's not compatible, brothers and sisters. It doesn't fit. And so he says, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins neither has neither seen him nor known him. Whoever abides in him does not sin. In this sense, in the context of the chapter, chapter, he's not saying you'll never commit a sin, but you don't go on living a life characterized by sin. You will not, you will not just go on carelessly living in sin. That's what we did before Christ. We delighted in sin. We loved darkness. That's what John 3 says. Men love darkness. Prior to Christ, we love darkness. But now we love the light. Yes, there's another truth that balances it, that I have this body of flesh. 
And it pains me because I, I do the things I don't want to do sometimes. And I don't do the things I should do sometimes. That's what Romans 7 says. But my life should not be characterized by sin. It says, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Apparently, there was deception among the people of God there in that day. And there were some who said, it's okay. You can persist in sin. You can live a life of sin and you can claim Jesus as your savior. It's not compatible with the gospel. It's not compatible with scripture. The attitude of the Christian and, 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 and as I see it, this is a, a heart matter. The attitude of the Christian is not a carelessness toward practicing unrighteousness. We don't carelessly go about practicing unrighteousness. We don't take lightly sin. We know that he was manifested to take away our sins. You know what the, uh, the Apostle Paul said in, in Romans 6? Well, in Romans 5, and that's really where it starts, he speaks of the grace that abounded from God. Grace, as we sing, that is greater than all our sin. Praise God. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Yes, he has paid the price for our sin. We delight in that. We love to remember him every Sunday morning as often as we can because he paid the price for my sin. His grace was greater than all my sin. And I am a sinner. First John 1 says, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. Yes, I'm a sinner. And I'm so glad that his grace is greater than all my sin. But it doesn't stop there. He says, what shall we say then in Romans 6, 1? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Or God forbid. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? We no longer live a life characterized by sin. And so we, when we come in contact with some who say, well, I know I live a life of sin and debauchery. I, 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 I just love it. I can't help it. It's just what I do. But I'm a Christian and I love Jesus. It's not compatible with the gospel, brothers and sisters. It's just not. We struggle with sin. Yes. We don't live lives characterized by sin. It says, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. But he who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Sin is Satan's playground. That's what characterized Satan. It wasn't just one sin, but Satan goes on in sinful rebellion against God, against his people, against his principles. This is who Satan is. The Christian is now a child of God. If he's my father, well... There ought to be some family resemblance. I ought to look like him. I ought to walk like him. I ought to talk like him. I ought to view sin as he views sin. He sent his son who was manifested to take away our sins. How could I just continue in sin? Well, grace will abound. I continue in sin. It's not part of the gospel. It's not part of the scriptures. The Christian's attitude should be that sin grieves us. When you read David's confession in Psalm 51, he sinned. There's no doubt. David fell horribly, but he was grieved by the sin. When the spirit of God laid hold on his heart and we have the spirit of God within us, sin grieved him, grieved him. And so it should be for the child of God. There should be a family resemblance with God the father if I am indeed his child. Whoever has been born of God does not sin for his seed remains in him and he cannot sin in that sense. Practicing going on characterized by lawless rebellion in that sense. He cannot sin because he has been born of God. It's interesting that, you know, one of the doctrines that we hold dear 
is that of eternal security. And I, it's hard. We put terms to things, and sometimes people mean one thing by it, and others mean the other. But the fact that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. That, that's, that's eternal security. That God, if you've been born again, you can't be unborn again. You've been born again. You can't go back and reverse it. So, so this wonderful truth that, that he who has begun a good work will complete it. Uh, Paul says in second Timothy chapter one, uh, I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. He will complete the work. This has an element of it in it. Cha- uh, chapter three, verse nine, whoever has been born of God does not sin for his seed remains in him. Yet it's the very doctrine that his seed remains in him that proclaims to us that we can't go on sinning. Some people don't like the idea that a child of God remains a child of God, but it's scriptural. It's biblical. And it does not give us the license to go on sinning. In fact, the fact that his seed remains in us, it's not going anywhere if you're a child of God, is uh, proof. It is truth that you could not go on sinning because if his seed, the word of God, the spirit of God, whatever it is that he may be referring to there, if his seed remains in you, if Christ is in your heart, if you've been born again and made a new creation in Christ, it is that very truth that forbids you. It is that truth that 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 proclaims that that we will not go on sinning. Some think that eternal security would give us a license to sin, but it's the very opposite. He's not going anywhere. He's taken residence in my heart if I've received him as my savior. And if he's there, it's impossible for me to just go on carelessly sinning in lawless rebellion against God. It's impossible because I'm a new creation in Christ. So evidence number one, he practices righteousness. And it says in verse 10, and again, this is kind of a hinge verse, as it says, in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are made manifest. So the idea is that this is how you know them. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. I didn't say it, brothers and sisters. He said it. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, no matter what they think. Nor is he who does not love his brother. Evidences of the Christian life. You'll practice righteousness and you'll love the brethren. These are the two evidences. And we're going to quickly read through or work through the second evidence. And we'll close shortly. It says, uh, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Look at the wording of verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He doesn't say... You will pass from death to life if you love the brethren. That's not what he says. He says, we know. That is to say, one of the evidences that you have passed from death unto life is that you love the brethren. Think about perhaps the most vivid illustration in Scripture. The Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 9 says that this man was breathing Threats and murder against Christians. He literally was breathing, it says. I don't think it could get deeper than that. If, if, if hatred toward God's people is literally just seeping from you. Well, that's where Paul, that's where Saul was prior to Christ. He hated Christians. He hated them, wanted nothing to do with them. But of course, you know, in Acts chapter 9, that he came face to face with the Lord Jesus and he was born again. He became saved. And what a remarkable transformation. Someone who once hated Christians now loved them and literally laid down his life for them. 
on behalf of Christ. And I, I just really, really enjoyed this one this one thought. Think about this. Acts 9, verse 1, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord and so forth. So he's filled, fuming with hatred. He comes face to face with Jesus. He becomes born again. And then the Lord speaks to a man named Ananias. And he says to Ananias, well, this man Saul, you know, uh, he's, he's uh, met with Jesus and so forth. I'm paraphrasing. But then the Lord asks Ananias to go and uh, to make contact with Saul. And you could imagine uh, what it would be like. Here was a man who was notorious for killing Christians. And the Lord has asked me to go and to lay my hands upon him. What might this be like? I just love the wording of this. It says in Acts 9:17, and Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, he's my brother. I don't know that I could have done that. In fact, here was blind Saul. He couldn't see. Remember, Jesus had blinded him. Maybe I would have said, well, maybe he came to know you, but boy, he's done some damage. I'll just take him out right here. I'll get rid of him. He's blind. He's helpless. But he comes up to him and he he lays his hands on him and he says, brother Saul, what a oh, how those words must have just been like music coming off of his ears. Brother Saul, the one who hated Christians is now a brother in Christ. We are part of the family of God. Brothers and sisters, this is our privilege to live righteously. This is our privilege to love the brethren. Do you know what a life of wickedness will do for you? I was just talking to this young man, Nick, who was here last week, and he he lived his teenage years. He didn't know Christ. He didn't come from a Christian family, and he lived a life of, of sin. And his words were to me, well, I asked him, how did you come to know the Lord Jesus? What happened? And he said, well, you know the destruction that sin brings. I was living a life of sin. This is our privilege, brothers and sisters, to live righteously, to practice righteousness. This is our privilege to love our brothers. Do you know what a life of hatred is like? Have you met someone, especially an elderly person, who's bitter and angry and filled with hatred? Isn't it beautiful to come across elderly folks who who love the Lord's people amidst all of their issues? And we have issues just like a human family. You're part of the family of God. We have issues. My kids, they recognize in each other so well. In fact, all of their issues. He's done this and done that. We recognize that. But he's my brother. What had Saul done to deserve such a term title? What, what, what had he done? What had he done for the church? What had he done for Ananias, for Ananias to lay his hands on him and say, Brother Saul, Brother Saul. He had done nothing, nothing good. In fact, he'd done everything wrong, everything evil. But he's my brother. That's the way Ananias saw it. What a tremendous, tremendous thought. And and so he says, well, and we're going to close with this. By this we know love. Because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Think back for a moment to the story of Joseph. His brothers hated him. Here comes this boy, he, this dreamer. Get rid of him. Kill him. I hate him. And they conspired together. Kill him off. Well, we won't kill him, but we'll throw him into a pit. Here's some people. We'll sell them off. Good riddance. My brother. I don't care. Get rid of him. But five or six chapters later, you see men who were changed. Had they really loved their brother, things would have been different. Had they really loved their father, For his sake, they would have loved their brother, but they didn't get rid of him. But here's some six chapters later. Well, Benjamin is now caught their other younger brother of the same seed of the same parents. And maybe they would say, get rid of him. 
Oh, you found a golden cup in his sack. Well, you, you take him. Take him back to Egypt. We could care less. But it was different this time. They said, here we are. Take us. We will be your slaves. And Joseph said, oh, no, 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 no. I'll just take Benjamin. You guys go on back to your home. And Judah pled with him and said, take me instead. This is the attitude, brothers and sisters. We also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And it's going to be manifested in so many different ways. There's practical ways here that he manifests love. As we can't see each other in need and just close up our hearts and say, I could care less they have needs. If God has enabled us, we should help them. We should love them. There's so much more that could be said. So much more that could be said. I'm going to close with that. I just want to close with one little illustration. Some time ago, I had a rather animated young man, young boy, in fact, and he was telling me of this story about how this great white shark attacked him. And, oh, he was an animated young guy. And he told me the story. And this encounter was vicious. And, and, you know, you could imagine the way that he laid this out. And I was bit here, but I fought him off and all that. Boy, this boy loved to tell stories. There was a problem, though. If such a story were true, where is the evidence of it? Here he stood before me. And it's just an illustration, brothers and sisters. I didn't condemn. He was he was a young man. But if he had had such an encounter with such a beast, there would certainly be evidence of it. Brothers and sisters, if we've claimed that we've had an encounter with God Almighty, if we've claimed that we have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, if we claim that Jesus Christ has taken us from darkness into light and and death into life, such an encounter would certainly manifest itself with evidence. We shall be like him. We have the privilege to be like him now, to walk like him, to talk like him to grow with him, not in our own strength, but by his strength, by his power. Our Father, we do thank you for the joy that it is. What a tremendous encounter it was for Saul to meet Jesus there and to be born again. And for each of us that know the Lord Jesus, what a privilege it was to come face to face with the Lord Jesus. Yes, he would be our judge, but as our savior, that we would be born again. And with such a tremendous encounter, with such a tremendous God, oh God, we know that the evidence should manifest itself. We do pray that you would help us even more so. We know that these things should be true of us. We pray that you would help us even more so to practice righteousness, to love one another. We look back at what was done for us at Calvary. We look at a God of love, a God who is holy. Certainly we should love and be holy. Help us, we pray. Help us to rightly understand your word and to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.